God in heaven, your presence is here. We all can sense it. Uh, You've given us this opportunity to be in your presence. And so, God, as we open your word, may you speak to our hearts. May we understand in a very small way your incomprehensible grace. In Jesus' name, amen. I can still remember my kindergarten and first grade teachers, Velda Ruby. She was my kindergarten teacher there at Cascade Adventist Elementary, right there on the campus of Atlanta Adventist Academy. Uh, she was such a good teacher, one of my favorite all-time teachers. I think I kind of had a crush on her a little bit. You know how that is. She taught letters to the kids, and she had such great ways to do that. In fact, she took all 26 letters of our alphabet, and she cut them out of sandpaper and then glued them onto cardstock. And I remember all the kindergartners sitting in a circle. Everyone had a, had a cardstock page that was turned over, and one at a time, we'd close our eyes and turn it over and feel the letters of the alphabet. I still remember the feeling of the letter R, capital R. That was my letter. Next year, I was in Miss Seeley, Kathy Seeley's classroom as a first grader, and she took those letters and helped me form words and helped me start reading. And for so long, I was in, uh, all of us would take turns going into the uh, copy room, the work room, and we'd sit on a, a stool with a tape recorder, for those of you that know what a tape recorder is, and we would read out loud and record it so we could give it to our parents and they would think it was so cute. But every good story that I would read has a beginning and an ending. And in fact, some of my favorite stories are the Berenstein Bears books. Have you guys read those? You know the Berenstein Bears. They're fantastic. Here they are. Mama and Papa and brother and sister bear. They just do life together. And you get to journey through life as they do. Sometimes they go on picnics and the ants get in their food. Sometimes they get stuck in a rainstorm. My all-time favorite Berenstein Bear books were when they, uh, the, boys and the boy and girl had to clean their rooms. I don't know why I loved that one. Maybe because it gave me hope that my dirty room could be clean one day. But I loved those books. And every good story starts and ends the same way. See if you can help me out. All good stories start the same way. A long, long time ago. Oh, you guys don't read enough. In a land far, far away. And they all end the same way too. And they lived. Yeah. When you read a good story, they always end the same way. They lived happily ever after. And when we read that, we think, man, that could happen to me too. Look at this beautiful story. That's what my life can look like too. Moses' story doesn't end that way. His story is a little bit different than you would expect. It doesn't seem to be a happily ever after story. In fact, last week we spent a good chunk of time talking about Moses, this incredible leader of two and a half million Israelites as he he led them through the desert, this chosen mouthpiece of God to lead people, yet he was a sinner just like you and just like me and in need of God's incomprehensible grace just like we are. And last week we learned that God's grace isn't dependent on our behavior. He doesn't size you up and then decide if he's going to give you grace. His grace is for you before you have even sinned. And last week, we were amazed at God's incomprehensible grace. We pick up Moses' story today in Deuteronomy chapter 34. If you've got your Bible with you, I invite you to open it with me. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's okay. There's a blue book in front of you, and you can follow along on page 151. In fact, I was thinking about these uh, pew Bibles this last week, 
of the blue books in front of you, and I thought to myself, man, if there's somebody today that doesn't have a Bible, you take that Bible home with you and you can read it. It's, it's a gift from our church to you. That's, that's why they're there. You can follow along on page 151, Deuteronomy chapter 34. It's the fifth book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the last book of the Pentateuch written by Moses. Gen- uh, De- Deuteronomy chapter 34. If you're there, say amen. amen. Okay, here we go. Deuteronomy chapter 34, right there in verse 1, here's the end of Moses' life. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob when I said I'll give it to your descendants. I've let you see it with your eyes, Moses, but you will not cross over into it. Poor Moses. I mean, he knew what was happening. He'd already gathered all of the Israelites together. He'd already given them a final address. He knows that the next step for him is not a good one. All the Israelites know what's happening too as Moses stands up and he he speaks to them of the history of what God has done and how he's led them in the past and he encourages them to trust him in the future. He says, steer clear of idols, trust in the one true God. He ends his message with a blessing on each and every tribe and as he's done, he leaves the encampment and heads to the base of Mount Nebo. Everyone knows what's happening. He's on this solo hike as he heads up Mount Nebo and I wonder to myself, I wonder if he was tired. I wonder if he was in good shape. I wonder if he got out of breath as he got to the top. And I wonder what the view was like at the top of Mount Nebo. You know, growing up in Atlanta, there, uh, there's, a, there's like one mountain right there in Atlanta. It's called Stone Mountain. So, some are nodding your heads like you've been there before. Here's a picture of it if you haven't. There it is, this big granite blob that sits there. When you fly into Atlanta, you can see it. It's on the east side of Atlanta, just outside of the 285 Pi. And it's an incredible little uh, granite mountain. In fact, I've climbed it so many times, I can't even, can't even count them. And as a little boy, on Sabbath afternoons, my family would go to Stone Mountain and we would hike it. And now there's some steep spots where you want to get down on all fours and kind of claw your way to the top. But I remember this one tree more than any other tree because as a little boy, it fascinated me. It's a little pine tree that when it was just growing, it sent its roots either side, two different ways, looking on that granite for some soil. And as it grew, it grew where there was a hole underneath the tree. And as a little fella, of course you think of one thing when you see a hole in a tree, you wanna climb through the hole, right? I'm the only one that would think that way. I mean, wouldn't everyone think that? So I would climb right, I would look for that tree every time we'd climb the mountain, I would climb through it, and I remember the last time very specifically because I thought, ah, it's a little too tight. We won't be doing that next time. But as you get to the top of Stone Mountain, you can see for miles. You can look way down into downtown Atlanta and see the skyscrapers. You can look way up north and you see the North Georgia mountains and the beauty that it has there. You can look down below and you see Stone Mountain Lake below. Stone Mountain is about 1,700 feet above sea level, which is not too far from Mount Nebo, which is 2,700 feet above sea level, yet it's right there above the Dead Sea, so it's 4,000 feet above the Dead Sea. 
and it's a view that's unbelievable. In fact, somebody said that on a clear, clear day, you can see from Mount Nebo all the way to Mount Olives, which is in Jerusalem. In fact, here's a picture from the top of Mount Nebo. It gives you a little beauty. You can see the Dead Sea hanging out down there. And I wonder what the view is like for Moses as he stands on top of this mountain, just looking. I bet it was breathtaking. I bet it was this gorgeous view. He could see everything from there. And I wonder as Moses hears the words of God as he says, you will not go into this land. I wonder if tears welled up in his eyes and slipped out over the the lids and, and streamed down his cheeks as he thought about what could have been. I mean, he was this leader that started out in bondage and slavery, and now he was on the edge of freedom forever and ever, the promised land where God had had called them to be. This was Moses, the one that was drawn out of a riverbed to lead the people to the freedom. But Moses wasn't going to go. Why couldn't he go? You know, the answer is way back where we were last Sabbath in Numbers chapter 20. You don't have to turn there. Right after Moses strikes the rock with his staff, God says these words. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you'll not bring the community into the land I give them. Not Moses. And now the memory of God's words floods back over Moses as he stares off into the distance. He's looking for the victorious land that God would give his people, but he wasn't going to go. Moses, he gives one final plea, one final confession of sin in his life, and he asks God for for forgiveness. And then God does something that's unbelievable, something that was most amazing because God opened Moses to see a view of the future. It's a prophetic vision as Moses sees down the timeline in the future, and he sees a little baby being born in a stable, and he sees Jesus growing up to know what his father was like, his earthly father and his heavenly father, He sees Jesus betrayed by the Jewish uh, people. He sees Jesus be nailed on a cross for the forgiveness of sins, and he sees him raised from the dead. What a vision! What a view! And then, like a tired warrior, Moses laid down to sleep. Deuteronomy 34, verse 5, here's how the story continues. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, As the Lord had said, he buried him. Who's he? What a funeral. God buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, but to this day no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. And it makes me wonder, how did he die? He was a healthy boy. He just had a physical from the doctor. He looks good. Blood pressure's low. Everything's good. He didn't have COVID. He didn't have a disease. How did he die? I mean, the Bible says that he had good eyesight and he was full of strength. How did he die? I wonder, do you think God killed him? Where was the incomprehensible grace of a God that gives grace even though we sin? Where's the forgiveness of the ultimate forgiver? Especially to Moses, the leader of his people. Where was this happily ever after ending for Moses' life? Or do you think that the natural consequences of sin, which is death, just had to happen for Moses? Uh, Do you think that God had to pull back his life-giving power so that those natural consequences could happen? Do you think that God's heart broke as Moses, this leader, died in his arms that day? You know, sometimes I wonder if there's other people in this room that, like me, sometimes feel like you're unforgivable, 
like you have done things or you continue to do them now that just puts you so far from God that you can't be forgiven, that God's incomprehensible grace just can't reach you. I mean, it, it sounds like Moses, I mean, he even confessed his sin, yet he couldn't go to heaven. Do you ever feel like Moses and feel unforgivable? You know, Moses' story, while it feels like a sad story, it doesn't end there. There's more to his story. It doesn't stop there on Mount Nebo. God's incomprehensible grace wasn't done yet. In fact, you have to go all the way to the end of the Bible, to Jude. It's only one chapter, chapter, but in verse 1, it tells you what happens at the grave site where Moses had just been buried. God had just buried him. Here's what Jude tells us. Even the archangel Michael, that's Christ, that's Jesus, even Jesus, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, God did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Are you seeing the scene? Spirit of prophecy paints it in a better picture than you can ever imagine. Angels whisk Moses away to somewhere in the, in the desert, and then God's hands, Jesus' hands, dig the grave. The same hands that originally formed the body out of dirt at creation, the same hands that would one day take dirt and wipe it in a man's eyes so that he could see again, the very same hands that one day would be nailed to a cross for the forgiveness of sins, they dig the grave for Moses. And to the whole world, it appeared like Satan had won. He'd claimed the life of Moses. He was dead. There could be no happy ending. It was over, but a short time later, as Satan is dancing around the grave, doing his victory dance, as he's snickering and laughing because even one of God's faithful leaders couldn't resist the temptation of sin, as he's there around the grave, an awesome scene unfolds. Christ comes with a band of angels, and as they approach, Satan tries to leave, or tries to stay, but he can't because of their power and their glory. And Ellen White says these words, that Christ told Satan that he knew Moses had humbly repented of this one wrong, and that no stain rested upon his character, and that his name in the heavenly book of records stood untarnished. Then Christ resurrected the body of Moses, which Satan had claimed. Oh man, I can see it so clearly. Jesus drops to his knees in the desert and he takes his supernaturally powerful arms and he plunges them deep into the sand. And with one arm behind Moses' neck and with one arm under his knees, he pulls him from the grave and he says, you're forgiven. My grace is sufficient. There's more for you in this life. I'm not through with you yet. Jump with me many years down the road into the New Testament. You get to see an incredible scene that unfolds. Jesus has been preaching and teaching and spending time with people and he's exhausted. He's just predicted his own death that would come very soon. And we see in Mark chapter 9, it says this. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured, completely changed before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. I mean, in one of Jesus' darkest hours where he can't see past the gloom of the tomb, who shows up but Moses? 
Elijah's there representing those that would never see death but would be translated straight to heaven. And Moses is there representing those that would die but then go to heaven as Jesus resurrects them. And it's almost as if Jesus, who is in a desperate place as he feels so far from his father and separated from him, he's not sure that he can even go on with this next step in the, the plan of redemption. And Moses comes to his side and he says, you can do it. I was dead and you gave me life. I was a sinner and you gave me grace and because of what you're about to do, you can do it for them too. Man, to think of Moses, if his life had ended in the desert, it would have just been the end, yet God knew that he needed him for such a time as this. I wonder if God resurrected Moses and and gave him new life because he knew that down the road, Jesus would need the encouragement of a fellow leader. I wonder if God saw that there was something so much greater than what Moses had been that he kept him alive or he gave him new life. I wonder if God saw what Moses could be and he gave his incomprehensible grace to him so that he could live again. I think you can summarize it this way. We'll put it on the screen. With God's grace, your life means so much more. So much more than you could ever think or imagine more than you could ever dream, God's grace makes your life so much more meaningful. When I was at seminary up in the frozen tundra of Michigan where I don't need to go anymore, (laughs) there was a little non-denominational church just on the side of the road on the way to Benton Harbor. Some people call it Benton Harlem because it's some sketchy living up there. And as we were driving by, we saw on the church sign this event that was going to happen and we thought, oh, let's I thought, well, I'd like to go to that. And if you're an 80s baby, then you'll know the, the heavy rock band named Korn. Any, anybody listen to Korn? I'm kidding, don't raise your hands. Don't, no, I'm kidding, I'm joking. <laughs> and if you listen to them, then you would know that their lead guitarist is this guy right here, Brian Head Welch, uh, one of the greatest guitarists ever on the planet. And his story is quite amazing. In fact, this little non-denominational church invited him to come to that church to share his testimony. And so I went, Jen went too. We went there and, and listened to him. He looked just like, uh, he, had, he had a smile on his face, so more like him on the right than him on the left. But as he sat there and gave his testimony, I could see how with God's grace, his life means so much more. He was an addict, addicted to meth and cocaine and alcohol. Uh, he was just a wreck as far away from God as you could expect, someone that didn't honor God in any area of his life. But in a time of deep soul searching, he experienced the gospel. He felt the presence of Jesus in his home and in his life, and it changed him in such a way that he said, I don't want to be a part of that. In fact, I want to live only to lift the name of Jesus. So he left the band Corn and he toured and, and gave his testimony. And now he lives for Jesus, not himself, not for money, not for fame, but he lives for Jesus because he's experienced the grace of a God who has incomprehensible grace, who when he gives his grace, your life means so much more. I know that in our life, we're always going to screw up. But do you really, do you think that God has bigger and better plans for you? Do you think that he can use you more than you could ever think or imagine? See, it's when we confess our sins to him and when we say, God, use me 
how you can use me. Use me more than I ever thought I would. It's then that God reaches his supernaturally powerful hands deep into the dead as a doornail casket that we call life. And he puts one arm behind our necks and one arm under our knees and he pulls us forth and he says, you're forgiven. My grace is sufficient. There's more for you in this life. I'm not through with you yet. Though we'll always have struggles and there will always be sin in our lives until we experience uh, freedom in heaven. God will use us for his glory. And that happily ever after ending, it's coming. It's coming from the skies. It's coming from the one who says, my grace is sufficient. And when he comes, we can truly say, we live happily ever after.